0: So, we are concluding our series on uh, our series, no, our season of discipleship. And we're finishing with the big question What is salvation? And last week, I shared with you, I dropped three words that I thought would be really, really great to kind of spark our thinking with regards to today's message. And these three words were eschatology, soteriology, and atonement. Put your hand up if you know what those three mean. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> so these are big words that we use in the church to describe salvation. Because you see, this question here, it's a big question, isn't it? It is a big, big question in the life of the church. And it is one that people have been striving with for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So today, part of our discipleship is I want to talk about this. And and I love the fact that we've had a baptism because in that space of baptism, there are some of what these words actually mean. So I'm going to very quickly talk to you about this. Now, I've said to you before, I'm not going to preach theology. And when I say that, I mean, I'm not going to try to convince you to take a particular theological position. That's not what this is about. What this is about is equipping you with the words, terminology and awareness of what's happening in the Bible so that you can then make your own mind up. Because there's nothing in the world worse than having somebody come along and saying, you have to believe this and you have to believe that and you have to believe that. No, that's not what we're about here in this church. What we are about is we're about saying to people, God's word is there and it's available for you. And in opening that word, you have an amazing gift I want to share with you very briefly, my, my cousin, very sadly, he worshiped with us a few times, uh, has had to go back to Argentina. It's sad for us because we're going to miss him. Argentina is literally the other side of the world. He's uh, getting ready for bed right now, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, so we're going to miss him. We're going to miss him a lot. But he had to go for a very good reason. And that's because he's a pastor and he's been asked to conduct a wedding for some dear friends. And so he figured, you know what, his time among us here in Australia, he had all these experiences and uh, he was ready to go home and have that experience back home. But one of the things we gave him was, without trying to affect the weight allowance he had for the plane, we gave him some Spanish Bibles. Do you know why we gave him Spanish Bibles? Because they're cheaper to buy here than they are over there. See, we are so blessed. We can go to Kuro, we can go to QBD. You can buy Bibles at QBD, did you know that? You can go to the National Library, we were there. My cousin and I were there a few weeks ago at the National Library in Canberra. We were probably the only ones there, by the way. It was like a dead town, I couldn't believe it. Um, But uh, we were there and sure enough, they had a whole section. We looked up in the database, a whole section of Bibles. Historic Bibles, Bibles that came on ships. Hundreds of years ago to this country. Isn't that amazing? We have access to so many different translations, interpretations, and ideas of God's Word in the English language. And yet, I can buy an $11 Spanish Bible here, and the same Bible would cost $200, $300 of their equivalency. So I said to my cousin, I said, I said, I want to give you this Bible." He said, that's amazing. That's an amazing gift. Not because of the cost, but because of how precious God's word is in those contexts. Now, don't get me wrong. Over there, they live a connected culture, connected life. I remember when I was there in 2009. This is a long time ago. 2009 is a long time ago. My son, who normally plays the bass, he was born that year. Okay? So that just tells you how long ago that was. I was there in 2009 and I'm up in the Andes at a revolving restaurant and I got Wi-Fi on my phone. (laughs) You know? So they're very connected. So it's not like as if they don't have access through online resources. But the physical Word of God is something precious. And the fact that I could give my cousin, I think it ended up being like three Bibles was hugely significant because he, he knew, he had people in his heart that he could go home and put these Bibles in their hands and go, this is a gift for you from the other side of the world. So when I say to you, I'm going to te- teach you about theology today, it's not because I want to convince you of a theological position. It's because I want you to hear what I have to say, understand it, and then go home and open your Bible, whether it's in your cell phone, on your computer, or a physical one, and actually go... God, what are you saying about this? And how does that influence me and affect my life? How are you speaking to me? And I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me as we ask him and invite him to speak with us right now. Lord, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for the baptism. I thank you for the reality that we can come before you and we have access to you. So bless us at this time and when we encounter with you richly, I pray. In Jesus' name. And the people of God say, "Amen." Thank you, Betty. So we're going to dive into these words straight away, right? So the first one is soteriology. Okay, I'm going to be throwing a lot of Greek at you today. Is that all right? Are you are you are you satiated with enough Greek in your no? All right, so good, so good. So I'll, I'll read it for you. So soteriology comes from these two words, soteria and logos. Soteria and logos. Now these words are broken down as Salvation and study, or the study of salvation. Seems simple, right? No. Because when we think of salvation in English, we think of this word. Thank you. We think of rescue. When we think of loss, we think of, or study, we think of reflection. So I'm going to study something because I want to, because I I can go into it and I I can rummage around and understand it. When we think of salvation, we think of rescue. And this is one of the problems we have in the Western church. Because if we've been saying to people, you need Jesus, they're saying, what for? They're saying, why do I need to be rescued? I don't need to be rescued from anything. I live a good life. I have a good job. I have a good family. I am a good person. I don't need to be rescued. But that's not what this word actually means. What this word actually means, if you actually break it down. Thank you, Betty. is preserving yeah you live a good life don't you want to keep it don't you want to maintain it because that good life without Jesus lasts until a certain point point. and what we ask you to be aware of is that in Christ and through the reality of biblical scripture and understanding there is eternity at stake that's what salvation means Yes, there is that element of God pulling us out of the miry clay and rest, setting us up to be in His presence and to be blessed. But there is the eternal element. And this is something that we need to understand. And the word logos as study is also inaccurate. Because we need to understand it as an account, a testimony. You see, when we said the word soteriology, it's not necessarily about people who are somehow interested in this stuff. Uh, Bible nerds like myself who then go in there and do the Logos. No. It's about the account or the testimony that it gives. That salvation actually gives. Which is actually what we've been talking about for 10 months. Because that's what discipleship is. Friends, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we don't just live a good life. We testify of that good life with the things we do. With the things we say and with who we are. That's why I wanted to cap off this series with this big question. Because ultimately we need to realize that the work of Jesus Christ is here in our hearts. But it is there so that everyone can see. I think I've shared with you the story before. I was, um, I was pastor at a, a rather large Pacifica church. And language was always a bit of an issue, right? I didn't know if people were going to understand everything that I said. Um, And I didn't want to dumb down the message. God's word doesn't need to be dumbed down. Am I right? But it needs to be made accessible. So I said to people, if Jesus is love, then that love has the power to overcome all things. Am I right? So that means that when someone cuts you off in traffic, your response shouldn't be, stuff you. It should be, I love you. When the wife talks back to you, your response shouldn't be, don't you talk back to me. It should be, I love you. When the kids mess up the kitchen and you walk in there after a hard day of work and you're like, and you're about to yell at them, the first three words coming out of your mouth should be what? That is the love of Christ. That can overcome anything. Because I tell you what, it's hard to yell at the kids when you've started with those three words. I should know. And I had this beautiful couple in my church they had a newborn. The wife was a weightlifter. The husband was a model. And you'd think it would be the other way around, but you know what? It's amazing couple. Absolutely amazing couple. And, and seriously, like, like she could bench me. She was amazing. She was really, really big. Really, really, really. And a beautiful soul. She's a great singer as well. Anyway. So he comes up to me one day and he said that he and his wife were having an argument about who was going to change the nappies. And as they're having this argument, he finally loses it and he slams the the bag of nappies on the floor and he looks at her and he goes, you know what? I love you. So I'm going to do this. And he went, he never took so much pleasure out of changing dirty nappies in his life. Something beautiful happened in that moment because he started with those three words. This is what I mean. Soteriology isn't about rescue. It's not about, hey, there's something wrong here. Let's go over there and let's save. It's about preserving that goodness so that when situations go bleh, God is there to maintain. Christ's love is there to uplift, to encourage, to forgive. Because ultimately, that's what this is about. Thank you, Betty. The second word we have, we talked about, was eschatology. And I'm sorry, I forgot to change it. (laughs) Eschatology. Go back one, baby. Eschatology. So, from eschatos and logos. And eschatos means last. But again, I want to change that for you. I want to say to you, it's not the last account. It's not just... What's happening at the end of days, at the book of Revelation, at the Armageddon? It's the ultimate in the literal sense of the word. There is no other account that is going to supersede this. I heard a great joke yesterday from one of the pastors at our regional conference. Minister goes and visits the door, visits uh, a lady. And no one came to the door. So he put in there a quote from the book of Revelations. I knocked at the door and you would not answer. I waited and you did not come. Then on Sunday morning, the same card that he wrote on appeared in the offering banquet, in the offering bag. And it was a quote there from the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, where it says, I heard you walking in the garden and I was naked, so I hid myself... (laughs) Eschatology is that moment where Christ is knocking on your door. And yes, there is an ultimate moment in the end of days in which Christ is going to be knocking at everyone's door. But there's a moment for each and every one of us where the ultimate revelation of God is there with Christ at our door the church that put my name forward to become a reverend had this beautiful painting in the front. And I used to sit underneath it waiting for my meetings and interviews with the the pastor of that church. I'll never forget it. It's been burned into my memory. It's been burned into my retinas. It's a famous painting of Jesus standing at the door knocking. And what I didn't realise, although I sat under it for so many, many, many meetings, so many, many months... Is that there's no handle on the outside. See Jesus isn't going to open that door for you. He's just going to. You've got to open. That is eschatology. It's not holding on until some end days. Where there's a big roar and thunder. And things are going on. It is that realization. In that stillness. And in that moment in your heart. Where you go. Oh my goodness. That is Jesus knocking at mine. Thank you, Betty. And lastly, I want to share with you this word, atonement. One of my favorite words in the English language. Its parsing is very simple. At one meant. Did you know that? Because it means to be at one with God. Isn't that beautiful? You see, there was this Latin term, expiatio which they were struggling to explain, explain to the English speakers. And so they figured atonement would be a great way to understand that. That word, that Latin word, expiacio, actually comes from catalasso in Greek. And that is a reflection of the Hebrew word kippur. Now these concepts were all very foreign and very difficult to understand. So I'm going to try and unpack them for you now. Ready, Betty? let's go. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is expiatio. That is catalasso. That is Kippur. You see, they used to have this beautiful, magnificent temple. And there was an altar at the front of the temple. And it was about five meters high. Couldn't be a, a priest back then if you had fear of heights. And they would, up, would go up there and they would drag bulls and cows and lambs. You can imagine, these guys would have been buff, you know. They're carrying these things up to this altar. And they slaughtered them up there in plain view of the whole nation of Israel to see. And they're literally drawing attention to it. And they're going, you see this? This is for you. This is for your sins. This is what has been done for you. But Christ, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It was not a display for everyone to see. But a conviction to affect us in our very hearts. We talked last week about salvation being meritorious. Do we deserve to be saved? No. But we are saved because of God's paradoxical love for us. Paradoxical because His judgment says that He should chuck us away, throw us out with the old garbage. But He won't. Because He loves us. Thank you, Betty. Then we have this one. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received catalaso, reconciliation, expiacio. Kippur. i love that in this version in this greek language that word means change you know like when you buy something and you get change that's what it means that god has gone and he has actually purchased our lives you ever buy something from ikea i'm probably talking more to the younger people in the room now <laughs> No offense, I just, I know that we're the silly ones enough to go and try to follow those instructions. And, um, and you get home and you're just like, I just want my money back. I just want to get my exchange back. See, God wouldn't do that. God would struggle and strife and work with that blessed table or that nappy change station as much as He could. He does that with us because He loves us. To get that change. To get that reimbursement. That which is His. is claiming back. And that's us. In our unworthiness. And in our brokenness. Thank you Betty. Romans 12.1-2 You're probably thinking, Oh, now we finally get to our reading today. Thank you. It's about time. You know, <laughs> I hope you weren't holding your breath for it. But in order for us to understand that passage, we have to understand everything that's going on around it. And in this passage, we find this: these words. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He's asking us to get up onto that altar ourselves, not as the priest, but as the offering. This is your true and proper worship. So do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and prove what's God's will, what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The reading Bernie shared with us, thank you, Bernie, that was lovely. It goes on to explain what that looks like. And I would love to spend more time unpacking that for you, giving you examples. In fact, that's what I did. I'm sitting there at my computer, I'm preparing, and I'm thinking to myself, how can we do this? How can we do that? How can we? And, and then I realized, or maybe God told me, I don't need to tell you that. You know. You know how to lead a good life. You know how to respond. I would be teaching grandma how to suck eggs if I told you this right now. Why? Because you are people who live in this world, who love in this world, who serve others in this world. And all that Paul and I, we are asking you to do here, is in this moment. Consider when you do that, and we do that organically. To think about our motivations. To say to ourselves, you know what? It might be against my nature to be in this space and to serve in this way. But I'm going to do it because God loved me first. Because God saved me. Because God wants to preserve this good thing. Like clockwork, that fella, isn't he? (laughs) Because God wants to serve that good thing that is in me. That is there in response. Betty, let's jump to the last slide. (coughs) There we go. That's the front of the temple. Or an artist's rendition of what it would have looked like. It would have been a glowing beacon baking in the hot desert sun for all the world to see and experience. It lit up the morning, ancient accounts tell us, like the lighthouse of Alexandria. And in that, it gave all the worshippers of God hope because light was coming again. It was positioned exactly so that this facade would reflect the morning sun as it rose. And that, as it came up over the hill and over onto the mountain, would have been met with songs of praise and worship. Not for the sun, but for the God behind it. For the Jewish people believed that God's hands literally Picked that sun up from the darkness and rose it up. And that he was dependable to do it again and again and again every day. If they can believe that, why it's so hard for us to believe that God can do that for us even once. First Peter, the apostle who followed Christ so closely, says For you know, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or bought from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious or costly blood of Christ, the lamb, the sacrifice without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these ultimate times, these eschatological times. For your sake. For your salvation. Through him you believe in God. Who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. I pray that as we continue on this journey. And next season we're looking at courage. What's the courage that we need to follow Jesus Christ in the 21st century? Well dear friends. I hope that these words resound in your heart as we think about that courage and as we think about what salvation means for us in this moment. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment, for your work and your Holy Spirit. Continue to bless us with an understanding of this. Your salvation is offered freely and openly for all who call upon your name. And So we thank you for this. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen